go to sleep your little baby go to sleep your little baby goodbye baby I was a foster care and a school social worker, which is services to children in their own home for about seven years after graduation. And it was over that course of time that my best friend became pregnant. And I was so excited to, not only for her, but to have the opportunity to experience birth firsthand again. So I would go to appointments with her and I was shocked when I walked into the appointments that they weren't being run by physicians. I had no idea. Like, I just thought, like most people think like, okay, where's the doctor? When are they coming in? And that they were the only people that took care of pregnant women. You know, I was able to be present with her during her birth experience. And I have to say it was one of the most life altering experience that I've ever had. It's like I fell in love all over again to see firsthand the love, the compassion, the education that midwives provided. It kind of rocked my world forever. <laughs> and from that day forward, you know, I went on to pursue my career in midwifery. To be able to be that person to empower women is a call in and of, of itself. And to be the first person's hands to touch some of God's greatest creations, it's just amazing to me. And every single time I think about midwifery and my journey to midwifery and what I'm able to do and how I'm able to empower women, it just literally brings tears to my eyes. That was Michelle Lamar Suggs, a midwife in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Michelle is part of a growing cohort of black women embracing alternative birthing practices. As midwives, doulas, or birth attendants, these women work to provide emotional support and medical advocacy for other pregnant and laboring African-American women. Their reproductive work attempts to counter the institutional racism of the American medical system, which is both hostile and dangerous to pregnant black women. The story of African-American midwifery is part of a larger history of black women's struggles to protect their own lives, as well as the lives of other black women and their children. Their reproductive advocacy makes clear that the delivery room has become an important site to ensure that black lives matter. The context for this most recent wave of African-American reproductive rights activism is the rising maternal mortality rate which more than doubled in the United States between 1991 and 2014. Black women in the United States, regardless of their income or education, were three to four times more likely to die in childbirth than white women. Michelle, whose voice you heard at the top of this episode, works in Philadelphia, where the maternal mortality rate is 53% higher than the national average, and 74% of these maternal deaths were of African-American women. To understand the historical significance of African midwifery in its own specificity and within a larger culture of survival and resistance, it is necessary to look at this practice's rise, decline, and rebirth over the 20th and 21st centuries. In the early 20th century, there were tens of thousands of black midwives in the United States. In the 1940s, black midwives delivered a majority, more than 75%, of black babies in a number of southern states. Today, black women constitute less than 2% of the country's professionally trained nurse midwives. The decline of black midwifery in the United States was the result of policies and programs enacted by southern states and funded by the federal government, which began in the 1920s and continued for three decades. Under the pretense of protecting birthing women and their children, these policies stigmatized black, community-trained midwives and made it harder for them to practice legally. 
At the same time, racial inequality and discrimination in higher education ensured that the new profession of nurse midwifery, which emerged in the 1930s, would be almost exclusively white. The story of the decline of black midwifery reveals how modern medicine systematically delegitimized black medical practitioners, and in doing so, endangered black mothers and their babies. Today's rebirth of black midwifery likewise illustrates a long history of black women's resistance and survival in the face of a system that devalued black lives and endangered black reproduction. Here's Michelle Lamar Suggs, Black women's accomplishments and contributions to midwifery are often overlooked. You know, their birth work stems from practices and traditions that date back to even pre-colonization. One of the first documented Black midwives to arrive in the U.S. was documented somewhere back to like 1619, you know. And for most Black women in their African communities, they were also known as what's called granny midwives or community matriarchs. And they were more than just birth workers. Their scope encompassed more than just catching babies. They were literally pillars in their community. And they were spiritual and natural healers for many. And their role was very broad. They were more than, like I said, just catching babies. They were family counselors. They were breastfeeding consultants. They were postpartum doulas, nutritionists, family support. They were advocates and provided care and resources for people of color in their community. And these rich traditions have been passed down from healer to healer um, throughout, even through slavery practices. And what's so astounding is to me is that they brought hundreds of thousands of babies into the world without running water, without electricity, and the aid of modern medicine. Not only did they have to be skilled, but they had to be resourceful, they had to be resilient. And that's the rich history of women that I come from. In this episode, we show how the delivery room became a place of peril for Black women and babies. And we show how Black midwives have long labored to ensure that Black women's safety and dignity matter in and beyond the maternity ward. I'm Lauren Gutterman. And I'm Gillian Frank. Welcome to Sexing History. Black midwifery thrived in the 20th century, in segregated spaces, and especially where there were scarce medical resources. Elsewhere, midwifery was in decline, especially in urban white hospitals, where medical professionals insisted that licensed physicians were safer and more skilled at delivering babies. Physicians and policymakers unfairly blamed midwives for high infant and maternal mortality rates in the early 20th century especially among black women. In 1917, the Children's Bureau, a federal agency devoted to protecting the health and welfare of mothers and their children, published a study that found that the maternal mortality rate was twice as high for black women as compared to white women. Even though studies found that midwife-attended births in several northeastern cities were safer for women than those overseen by doctors, the medical community became increasingly concerned with what was known as the midwife problem. As part of their campaign to encourage expectant mothers to turn to physicians rather than to midwives, medical practitioners and policymakers portrayed midwives as ignorant, dirty, and old-fashioned. These depictions were meant to undermine the honor and respect historically granted to midwives. 
Midwives held leadership roles in their communities and transmitted cultural traditions and historical memories from one generation to the next. In most cases, black midwives learned their trade from older female relatives and began practicing only after years of apprenticeship. Within African-American communities, midwives viewed their work as a spiritual calling and a godly practice. They accepted little compensation, if any, for their services. Families who could not afford to pay often gave midwives gifts, including food and livestock. Mrs. Willie Ann Lucas practiced as a midwife in Phillips County, Arkansas, for three decades after World War II. Her mother and grandmother were midwives as well. Here's an excerpt from an oral history interview conducted in 1995 and preserved at Duke University Library's digital collection. That mother was a midwife, my mother was a midwife, and uh, I guess I took it up from my mother. But I had to go to school a year to, to class, you know, to learn all about it and everything. And uh, after that, I had to go out with an experienced midwife, which was my mother, that I went out with to deliver babies. And the first one that I went with her that she delivered, they named the child after me. <laughs> so, and my first delivery was the woman later named it after me. Yeah, it was a requirement that you go to school a year to, to learn it, you know. So I did, and of course, that was way back in the, like I, for, it was in the 40s when I started. I think I got my license in 45. But back in those days, you delivered a baby for $5. And sometimes you didn't get that. And I remember before then, in the late 30s, you know, my mother would deliver babies, and they would pay her in corn, with corn. Corn was 50 cents a bushel. Pigs were a dollar. And they would pay her in corn, pigs, and you get a half a calf, you know, sometime for $5. And that's the way she got her money most of the time for delivering babies back in the Depression days, I guess you'd call it. Back in my mother's days, a midwife was just almost the same as a doctor because, uh, you know, where that World War One, you know, World War Two broke out. Well, then doctors were scarce and everything else, you know. So therefore, a midwife was just like a doctor back then, you know, in those days. And... I don't know, you just didn't have a problem. You just knew you was a midwife, and and they just come. Wake up 12 o'clock at night, and you hear this wagon coming down the road, and she just get on up out the bed because she knew there wasn't nowhere else for them to be going but coming after her. And she, they'd come in the wagons. They didn't have any cars. And she would come in sometime and rain in in the wintertime, and her clothes would be frozen stiff on her. She'd be standing up, and I said, oh, I'd never be a midwife. And bless goodness, before I knew it, I was one. Even as midwifery declined in many parts of the United States, midwives continued to play crucial roles in rural African-American communities. Rural women turned to midwives, in part because they could not afford physician services, and because there were few black hospitals in rural areas. Equally, they valued and recognized the quality of care that midwives provided. Midwives typically had more personal relationships with pregnant women than doctors did. 
They provided support for pregnant women and their families before and after delivery, and often treated the children they delivered as family. The care midwives gave to black mothers contrasted with the racist, denigrated treatment black people experienced in most hospitals and clinics. One black midwife, Bessie Jones of Georgia, recalled how doctors treated black women as less than human. Here is an excerpt of a 1961 recording of Bessie Jones from the Alan Lomax collection. Then you get your warm water, because I do. Everybody don't do it, but I know to do it, you know, to help out. You get to have warm water and a towel if the child looks like it's kind of having a hard way to come through. Take that warm water, the warmer you can bear it, and put some Vaseline or either oil and kind of cast oil in things since it's something that won't hurt you. But I use Vaseline most all the time, uh, uh, sweet oil or something like that. You take that in a and put some of that oil in that water, and that water be good and warm, take a towel and dip in that water, and kind of squeeze it out and put that to the span, you know. You know, put it right up. No, put it right up in a vinegar. Oh, oh. They put it right on the end there. You see, because yeah. that helped spread it. That warm water helped loosen it mm-hmm. and loosen you. Mm-hmm. And because it's already, he's pressing best he can, mm-hmm. this crossbow and that warm water helped help, help get that. Yeah. But doctors yeah. don't help you. No. Doctors don't do it, they don't have to. And um, then they thought, midwives, I don't know what they're doing, but brothers, you have midwives, which is, you're in a better shape. And that's why a doctor like to wait with a good midwife with hard breasts, mm-hmm. you know, a good doctor. Mm-hmm. But these other doctors don't care. Mm-hmm. He just put you up on the table and cock your heels up there and turn you loose. Now you have them as you want mm-hmm. It's an offer. You ain't got a vim enough in your side to, to do nothing. You cock, oh, I hate that, that's miserable. Mm. Cock up there like that, it's miserable. Mm. And you're hollering and going on, and the nurse running and nothing to it. She ain't gonna do nothing because she can't do the one with the doctor say. Yeah. Well, some nurses are slipping and help you try to ease your pain. Some yeah. nurses will, but some won't. Yeah. Something don't kill them more than the doctor do. And you're just suffering there and they're tied up on them table. They tie people on the table? Well, I have to say you're tied, you're the brace. You gave your hands and the arm and the brace and your legs and the brace. Well, what's the matter? You look like mm-hmm. a cow. <laughs> well, I don't like that. Not, not. So glad I had all my children home. Yeah. Mm-mm. You don't have. You don't tie anyone down or. Oh, no, you don't have to. Bessie Jones's interview spotlights how midwives' approach to labor and delivery differed significantly from that of physicians and of some nurses. In hospitals, physicians and attendees discouraged women from moving around during labor. Doctors increasingly prescribed heavy sedatives to laboring women, and they subjected them to the use of forceps, which increases a woman's risk of perineal and vaginal tearing. Midwives instead encouraged mothers to take an active role in labor. They encouraged laboring women to move around and to deliver squatting on the ground. They provided herbal remedies, prayers, and emotional support to help women manage pain. Here's Willie Ann Lucas talking about the pain reduction techniques she and other midwives used. Well, the only thing that I can remember that they used was quinine. And quinine was used if they were in labor and, you know, and had them little old piddly pains and they give them some quinine, it would cut them off if it wasn't that time. And if it was that time, they would heat them up and they'd go ahead on and, you know, they'd make the labor pains come closer and harder and they would go ahead on and have the baby. Some midwives would give the uh, patients castor oil. 
but I never did that. <laughs> no, no. So that's about all that they were allowed to give, you know. It's, it's something like that. Because when I started, I learned a few more little techniques, you know, in it, you know, things you could do. Like using a hot towel to keep them from tearing, you know, things like that. While many doctors and policymakers wanted to abolish midwifery altogether, other medical professionals saw midwives as a necessary evil. They believed that it was easier to regulate and supervise midwives, at least until the number of hospitals and clinics in the rural South increased. In 1921, Congress passed the Shepherd Towner Act in order to improve maternal and child health and mortality. The act provided federal funding to help state health departments regulate and educate midwives. These regulations targeted African-American midwives in the South because of their practical rather than professional training. These women were known as lay midwives because they entered the practice through apprenticeships rather than formal schools. State training and regulation programs for African-American midwives in the South made no effort to professionalize these lay black midwives or to preserve the knowledge they'd gained through years of experience. Policymakers did not intend to sustain the practice of midwifery, but to bring midwives under greater medical supervision until physicians and nurses could replace them entirely. White instructors believed that lay midwives did not understand basic hygiene and that they caused infant and maternal deaths because they were dirty and careless. Education programs often use simplistic songs, role play, and practice demonstrations to convey rudimentary skills like cleanliness and sanitation. Here's a 1937 recording of a group of five African-American midwives in Jackson, Mississippi, singing a song called, Why Does the Midwife Wear a White Dress? to the tune of Mary Had a Little Lamb. racism shaped midwife training programs, middle-class and middle-class aspiring African-Americans contributed to the decline of lay midwifery. In an oral history recorded in 1977, Eunice Rivers Laurie, an African-American public health nurse, recalled educating black midwives in rural Alabama in the 1920s and 1930s. Laurie is best known for her role as the coordinator of the notorious Tuskegee syphilis experiment. Her testimony reflects the ways in which black medical practitioners who were invested in a politics of racial uplift subscribed to stereotypes of rural African-Americans in general and lay midwives in particular as ignorant and unskilled. Then we taught uh, uh, maternity care. That is how we care and work with the midwives. Mm -hmm. All of this was my responsibility, teaching the midwives how to deliver how to use, wash the hands, cut the children, and nails, and how to deliver them, how to make the pads, how to prepare the bed for delivery. Because mm -hmm. at that time, the most of the women had the babies on the floor. We had mm -hmm. an awful time trying to train the mothers to use the bed mm -hmm. instead of on the floor. 
um, the granny midwives were the people that we had to depend on. And they depended on, they were taught to, if they had any difficulties, that they would get this patient to the doctor or get a doctor to come in. And we had the, the, the granny midwife was pretty well uh, in, uh, know, knew what to do in her limits. Mm -hmm. Sometimes you find that they would, uh, we'd have a time trying to get them to discontinue the teas and this thing and the other things and, and by getting, getting out of bed on time and getting up and keeping themselves uh, clean mm -hmm. and this kind of thing mm -hmm. to prevent any odors. But uh, we didn't have any, if they had a problem, they would contact their doctors in their, uh, in their home, in the town. Black midwives had little choice but to comply with such training demeaning as it was, if they wanted to secure and retain their state permits. Midwives who failed to fulfill required state protocol or practiced without a permit could be fined and even arrested. Like other African Americans encountering an expanding welfare state, midwives experienced greater surveillance and control than their white counterparts. Public health reformers believed that midwives were vectors of disease and required them to get vaccinated for typhoid and smallpox and temporarily revoked their licenses if they tested positive for syphilis. Registered nurses would also inspect midwives and their belongings for cleanliness and orderliness. Even with the surveillance and regulation, midwives found ways to preserve their own traditional practices and to resist state oversight. Anthropologist Gertrude Fraser has shown that some black midwives began carrying two bags, a bag to go and a bag to show, that is, a bag that they actually used for deliveries and another that they displayed to white nurses and doctors. Other midwives used bags that had hidden compartments where they secretly stored personal tools and aids that white inspectors considered dangerous or unhygienic. Often, midwives complied with training programs but were careful not to share everything about their birth practices with their medical supervisors. They continued prayers, incantations, and herb and smoke treatments, despite the warnings against them. Public health nurses and doctors responsible for regulating black midwives saw such acts of resistance as evidence that midwives were stubborn, disobedient, or too old or uneducated to change their ways. State efforts to educate and reformed black midwives in the rural South continued into the 1950s. In most cases, states continued to use the same educational material and information for decades. There were exceptions to this culture of denigrating midwives. In 1953, the Georgia Department of Health produced a remarkable documentary film entitled All My Babies, A Midwife's Own Story. The purpose of the film was to help train rural black midwives. All My Babies shows great respect for its protagonist, Mary Frances Hill Cooley, an African-American midwife estimated to have delivered more than 3,000 babies during her career. I want you to meet Mrs. Mary Cooley, a midwife who lives in Albany, Georgia. This is a story of how she helps people, people like Ida Fleming, who engaged Miss Mary to deliver her third child. People like Adam and Maribel Dudley, newcomers to Daugherty County, who bring their troubles to this midwife. 
in the county health department are doctors and nurses who help Miss Mary do the job to which she and thousands of other midwives all over the South have dedicated their lives, the birthing of healthy babies. All these your babies, Miss Mary? Yes, these are all my babies. Live at about 1,400. Kind of ones come this year. Here's my two. But even as the film lauds Mary Frances Hill Cooley, it depicts many other black midwives as uneducated and careless, and as needing to be brought under white supervision and control. Two days ago, a baby delivered by a midwife died when it ought to have lived. As your health officer, it was my duty to find out why that baby died. My examination showed that his cord got infected, and you all know what that means. Something wasn't clean. Maybe the midwife didn't boil her scissors long enough. Or it could have been that the dressing she used wasn't sterile. Or it might have been that she got in a hurry and uh, didn't wash her hands well. Now, you midwives in this county have built up a wonderful reputation. You work hard. And I know how difficult it is to keep things clean in some of the homes where you have to go. But your record shows that you can keep clean. And when something like this happens, it's a warning to all of us, to us doctors, the nurses, as well as to you midwives. It shows us how very easily we can slip back when we get careless. At the moment of All My Baby's release, the number of black midwives had already dramatically declined. In Mississippi, for example, only 600 midwives had permits to practice in the state in 1966. By 1982, there were only 13 licensed lay midwives left. Southern states accelerated the decline of black midwifery by revoking midwives' licenses and refusing to renew the licenses of women they deemed too old to work. In Florida, state regulators organized elaborate retirement ceremonies which they held at the midwife's church in order to signal to her community that her career was over. Mrs. Willianne Lucas stopped practicing in Arkansas against her own wishes after the state refused to renew her license in the early 1970s. Well, you know, with the blue card, and they, they had to be, you know, approved by a doctor. The only thing I was delivering twins, and uh, one we thought was dead and one wasn't, and the lady said, stop fooling with that one and try to take care of the one that's alive. And by that time, the baby gasped, you know, and uh, we knew it was alive too, you know, because, you know, they'd be in a sack and uh, that sack didn't burst. And therefore it was in there with all that fluid, you know, what's called a water bag or something. And so they, uh, that was, that was my, most my scariest uh, experience was with the, working with that one. No, but I just, you know, to me, it just was just natural. It wasn't anything. I didn't get afraid and nothing scared me or anything. I just, I could still be doing it, but, you know, they got all these health clinics now. And they said they didn't need the midwife anymore because they had enough health facilities, health clinics, to take care of all the OB patients. And so that's why I'm not doing it today. I would still be doing it. I loved it. It didn't bother me one bit. 
As the numbers of black lay midwives declined, medical practitioners and policymakers convinced many black women that using a midwife rather than a doctor was a sign of poverty, immorality, and backwardness. By the 1960s, most black women were giving birth in hospitals. However, they received substandard medical care. Because they could not access prenatal care and feared white medical practitioners' racist treatment and invasive procedures, black women often arrived in hospitals for the first time when they were in labor. Many obstetricians were annoyed and resentful of this new hospital population. One white doctor in Virginia wrote in 1966 that he had, quote, delivered 20 of these women who I'd never seen before, most of whom just dropped into the emergency room in labor without having prenatal care. Such a load on top of a normal practice plays havoc with the rest, to say nothing of office hours. Even in the process of labor, many black women came into conflict with hospital staff and procedures. Perhaps because of the strong tradition of black midwifery, Many African-American mothers believed that babies knew when to arrive and that doctors should not induce birth or manipulate babies. To avoid painful vaginal and rectal exams in the hospital, black mothers often preferred to do most of the hard, long work of birthing a baby at home and refused to head to the hospital at the first onset of contractions. Once in the hospital, many African-American mothers resisted physicians' and nurses' demands that they remain recumbent during labor and preferred to move around to manage their pain. Rather than respecting such women's agency over their own bodies, some medical practitioners responded to black women's attempt to control their own labor with force and anger. Recently, Professor Kimberly Blockett recalled how medical staff treated her own mother like a criminal when she refused to remain in bed while giving birth to her in December 1966. My mother was um, so drugged that she didn't even know she had had a baby until she sort of woke up and they told her she had a little girl and tried to put me in her arms and she wasn't capable of holding me. Um, so that was one of the first stories that I ever got about pregnancy and, ch and childbirth. And also that her pregnancy was pretty miserable throughout. And then later on, when we talked about it, uh, it came out that she somehow felt that uh, instinctively, right, that she wanted to be up and moving during her pregnancy. And they wouldn't let her get out of bed. And so she figured out that the only time they would let her get out of bed was to go to the bathroom. So she kept saying she had to go to the bathroom so that she could get up and walk around. Once they figured out what she was doing, what do you call it? They restrained her. So she was in active labor, restrained. So that story pretty much brought me to tears. And so I was absolutely convinced that I, I needed a d different model. And it also led me to distrust hospitals. And I asked her, did she, how much did she think that had to do with her race and her class, that they would do that? And she hadn't really considered it before I asked the question. And she said, well, you know, now that you say that, that could have had a lot to do with what was going on. Some hospitals, however, were more responsive to black women's needs. Historian Lisa Levenstein has shown that black women in Philadelphia in the 1950s and 1960s developed a strong affinity for the city's only full-service public hospital, Philadelphia General. Philadelphia General, in turn, 
provided them a high level of care. Between 1931 and 1954, the number of births at Philadelphia General quadrupled, in large part because so many black women chose to deliver there. By 1960, black mothers constituted 94% of births at this hospital. While black patients experienced some discrimination at Philadelphia General, the hospital's policies reflected an understanding of medical care as a fundamental right. Doctors and nurses addressed all patients, regardless of race and class, as Mr. and Mrs. And upon a patient's arrival, hospital clerks did not immediately ask for their financial information. This respectful attitude extended to single mothers. Hospital personnel were told not to ask about women's marital status until after delivery. Still, hospitals like Philadelphia General were rare. When city officials closed Philadelphia General in 1977 in an effort to save money, black women in Philadelphia lost this valuable community resource. According to the most recent studies of infant and maternal mortality in Philadelphia, black babies have a higher rate of preterm birth than any other racial or ethnic group. They are more than three times more likely than white infants to die within a year of birth. Their mothers constitute three quarters of all pregnancy-related deaths in the city. Since the 1980s, there's been a major effort on the part of historians, activists, and others to celebrate and reclaim the knowledge and contributions of black midwives. At the same time, Midwives, doulas, and birth attendants are revitalizing alternative birthing practices to combat high maternal and infant mortality rates among Black women in the U.S. The Black birth activists we spoke with in Pennsylvania take inspiration from midwives like Viola Brown-Jones, who provided Black women with affirming medical care. Viola Brown-Jones worked as a certified nurse midwife in Northampton County, North Carolina in the 1970s. She delivered more than 300 babies during her career without one maternal fatality. My very first baby was born in Gaston on an afternoon at 67, but the month I can't get it, October, I think. October 67? Yeah. It was a little boy, they still call him Hard Rock. <laughs> <laughs> he. Hey, uh, his mother called me and I said, I don't think I can deliver the baby. So I called the, the uh, head nurse at the, at the health department mm -hmm. and I said, Mrs. Bullifer, um Mary Ellen is going to have her baby. I've checked her and she is in labor. I, she said, well, I tell you what you do. You go and you deliver that baby and bring the birth certificate to me. I said, but I don't even have my scissors. She said, go to the, to the drugstore and ask Mr. Uh, whatever his name was. Tell him I said to let you have the scissors and he will know what, you, what I'm talking about. And he did. And, and I got them, and she said, and you bring it to me. I said, all right, and I went. That was 1967. Hmm. And this was your first birth that on your my, own. my first baby, and I didn't have any problem. Hmm. I never lost the baby. I had stillborn babies, but I didn't 
you know, babies didn't die no, and didn't lose a, a, a mother. Mm-hmm. The whole while, wow. from 67 to 80. Here's Michelle Lamar Suggs, the certified nurse midwife you heard from at the top of the episode. You know, Black infants in America are now twice as likely to die than white infants. And some of the recent studies, I believe, show that out of 12 out of 1,000 Black babies die at a comparison rate of like 5 to 1,000 of white babies. And this is a racial disparity that they say is greater than going back to the 1800s, you know, before the end of slavery. Uh, where women were just considered as chattel. Like, it's just astonishing to me. And income and education have provided or offered little protection to these stories. Some of the studies have shown that Black women with an advanced degree are more likely for their baby to die or to die in childbirth than white women with less than an eighth grade education. The United States is only one of 13 countries in the world where the rate of maternal mortality is higher, um, is worse than what it was 25 years ago. The CDC also had an another study where they showed that black women are three to four more times likely to die from pregnancy-related causes than their white counterparts. It boils down to systemic racism in our country. And as healthcare providers, it's not only our responsibility to talk about it, but to do something about it. And the sad part in my heart is that in healthcare, many are willing, are not even willing to acknowledge it. And meanwhile, black women and black children are dying at disproportionate rates. We must be willing to address our own internal biases. And we all have them and we've all fallen victim to them. But we can't allow that to shape how we care for our patients. Like before, and I say it all the time, you know, before healing can happen externally in this area, we have to take a close introspective look inside ourselves and bring healing to ourselves. Black women's act of bringing healing to themselves is the hallmark of modern-day Black birth activism. It is also a process of changing the story from one of oppression and denigration to one of empowerment and dignity. For example, Professor Kimberly Blockett's own birth experiences and activism dramatized this transformation. As Kimberly told us, her mother was physically restrained while giving birth to Kimberly in the 1960s. Kimberly in turn, committed herself to alternative birthing practices when she delivered her own children. These birth experiences inspired her to serve as a volunteer doula for her friends and family members, including her daughter Alex, who now has two daughters of her own. Here's Kimberly recalling Alex's first delivery. She had a really, I'm not going to say easy, but smooth pregnancy. Um, you know, I wanted to, we talked about prenatal care and what choices she was going to make. I wanted to be sure she had good prenatal care and she did. Um, and we talked about, you know, what she wanted for her birth and she made it clear that she wanted me to be there and, and no problem. So I was, I was her birth person and she was at a birthing center and they're fantastic so I felt really good about it. I didn't feel like I needed to um, be, uh, it, you know, the, the advocate. I didn't have to advocate for anything. I didn't have to, uh, you know, have words with a doctor or a nurse as I had had to do for my best friend. When I helped her, she gave birth in a hospital. Um, I didn't have to do any of that. So that made me feel really good. And I could just be in the role of taking care of my daughter. Here's Alex talking about her experience giving birth. 
there was an entire jacuzzi room, um, a separate like just bathroom with a shower stall and then a bed um, with the post, all four posts to help with, uh, you know, holding. There was, you know, a dresser with a mirror so you could kind of see yourself. They had the balls. So it was like whatever I wanted to do. They were like, you want to try this? You want to try this? Or, you know, maybe this? Like, are you comfortable sitting down? Are you comfortable this way? Um, I was receiving hot oil treatments um, the entire time to help my cervix um, open up and help to not rip or tear. So um, that was wonderful. It was a nice lavender smell in the room. They had aromatherapy. They asked me to make a playlist. So I kind of had that going. So I had a little Beyonce. So I kind of walk around to beats. Um, you know, and I had the hypno, uh, hypnobirthing CD, which I never actually even listened to. I just kind of fell into it. And that really was helpful, too. I've always been passionate about advocating for women and during pregnancy and childbirth. And I, I think because my mother had such a ridiculous experience and because my experiences were so good, I feel incredibly lucky. And I certainly wanted that experience for my children, my friends anybody I run into, essentially. Um, so yeah, I, I fight the urge to, you know, run up to pregnant women on the street who I don't know and say, are you getting good prenatal care? Have you read this? Have you read that? <laughs> Does your doctor listen to you? <laughs> I don't do that, but I fight that urge. She has helped several of her friends. And anytime I even mention that one of my friends are pregnant, she immediately starts asking me a million questions and asks me to be an advocate. She basically gives me information to advocate for them. Now I have to watch, you know, overstepping as well. But she's, like she said, she's immediately drawn to advocating for anybody that she knows or knows of someone who's pregnant. She has flown all the way to Arizona to help her friend deliver her baby and stay there for a week, you know, um, and, you know, left her own children and grandchildren to go help others. She would like really should be a doula as her second child because she's wonderful at it. Sexing History is written and produced by Gillian Frank and me, Lauren Gutterman. Our senior producer is Sunia Liganawi. Rebecca Davis is our story editor and producer. She also conducted all of the oral history interviews for this episode. Our assistant producers are Chris Babbitts, Isabel Mikado, and Mallory Zemanski. Thank you to Kimberly Blockett, Alex Fields, Michelle Lamar Suggs, Marquita Taylor, and Deborah Pascali Benaro for speaking with us. Thank you also to Todd Harvey, curator of the Lomax Family Collections at the American Folklife Center for helping us track down midwife song recordings. We are indebted to the scholarship of Sharon A. Robinson, Gertrude Fraser, Susan L. Smith, and Lisa Levenstein, which informed this episode. To learn more about their research and to see our liner notes for this episode and all our previous episodes, please visit our website at www.sexinghistory.com. Sexing History is made possible with generous funding from Alan Zwickler of the Phil Zwickler Charitable and Memorial Foundation. Created in honor of the journalist, filmmaker, poet, and gay activist Phil Zwickler, the foundation seeks to promote human rights, education, health, and the arts, specifically with respect to the gay and lesbian community, and generally with regard to those individuals and groups who need assistance to survive and be heard. Visit them at pzfoundation.org. We are also grateful for the support of the University of Delaware College of Arts and Sciences program for undergraduate summer research. Sex and History is also supported by funding from the Humanities Media Project in the College of Liberal Arts 
at the University of Texas, Austin. The Humanities Media Project aims to tell human stories and invite critical conversations that educate, inspire, and connect communities. They believe that the humanities play a crucial role in maintaining a healthy, democratic society. Sexing History is grateful for a grant from the Program in American Studies and the America Center Centro de las Americas at University of Virginia. The America Center promotes the interdisciplinary study of the arts, cultures, histories, and societies of the Americas. From all of us at Sexing History, thanks for listening.